One of the incredibly important ideas of Christmas is the idea of God coming into the world in human form. It's a remarkable statement, and yet it's at the core of the Christian faith that God himself made himself present in this world. Uh, And during that three years of ministry from around about 30 until he died on a cross at 33, Jesus uh, taught and he fulfilled everything that had gone before in many years of the Old Testament, hundreds and thousands of years of the Old Testament being opened up and preparing for Jesus to come into the world. Then he died on a cross. That really is the the Christian year. We begin at Christmas we end just a few years, a few months later at Easter, where we remember that Jesus uh, died on a cross, and then we see that he rose again and lived, and then returned to heaven. As he returned to heaven, he said something really important. He said this: He said, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. That's really interesting what he said. It's the things that you say right at that very last few minutes before Jesus returned to heaven must be incredibly important, mustn't they? If he's going to say anything at that point and for it to be recorded, then we would want to uh, grab a hold of that because it's got to have some importance. And he says, I want you to go and to make disciples. I don't want you to just get people to say that they believe. I want you to make followers. I want to encourage you to believe that in my strength, you can go and you can do that. It's not you persuading them. It's me working in an incredibly powerful way by my Holy Spirit presence, reaching people who previously would never have believed in the idea of Jesus in this world as the Son of God. And then he says, carry on doing this, uh, baptizing them. Now, the word baptized is a word that you would have used more regularly if you were a first century Greek. The word baptized literally means immersed, dipped. That's what it means. It was used for all sorts of different things. It's become, if you like, a Christian word, hasn't it? But it wasn't a Christian word as such at the time when it was first written. Baptized means literally dipped, immersed. And so the idea is, I want you to go and I want you to uh, encourage people to be followers of me who are immersed in me. That's the idea, immersed in me. Now, the idea of being immersed in me has two levels. Firstly, it means that if you like emotionally, spiritually, in my life, in my thinking, I am immersed in Jesus. And secondly, it means uh, as an activity, I will enact out what it means to be immersed in Jesus. And therefore, that's what we're going to do this afternoon. He said, carry on doing this until the end of the age. He said, I'm with you until the end of the age. Therefore, just carry on doing it. Now, in 21st century Great Britain, Western society, it's a strange thing. I know it's a strange thing. But one of the great things is it's always been a strange thing. It's always been uh, an unusual thing to do. Uh, But at the same time, it reaches and crosses every generation, every culture, every language, every people group. It's something which, in a strange way, unites us. You don't have to be the intellectual elite. You don't have to be how many people in the world are actually able to read, a relatively small number, proportionally speaking. You don't have to be able to read to take part in the act of expressing your faith. And so it's open 
to everybody who believes. And Jesus said, carry on doing this. We don't have many accounts of it actually taking part because in the New Testament, we have taken place. In the New Testament, we have just one book, the book of Acts, that gives us a little bit of a history of what happened in those first years where Jesus had returned to heaven and the disciples start this job of sharing the message of Jesus with the world around them. We've come to one here. It's the account of a Roman jailer in the city called Philippi. Philippi is in uh, modern Greece. It was a very important city in the ancient world. It was um, part of the Roman Empire. And Paul the Apostle goes into that city and he starts to speak about Jesus. Now, Jesus in every generation has been a challenge to people. He he just has. He's been a a, a confrontational, difficult person for many people to come to terms with. And at the same time, he's become the source of hope for many people. And so he challenges us and he comforts us together. It's a remarkable story as we see this unfold because in those first centuries, there's probably not any particular people group who have been more oppressed than those who followed Jesus. And yet, remarkably, the message of the gospel, the Christian message, has continued right up to today. Paul goes into this city, and the story that we have here is really very simple. He's traveling around that city, sharing the message of Jesus, and there's there's a couple of guys who have got a slave girl who's a fortune teller. And uh, as we read in uh, chapter 16, we read that as this woman who's this female slave had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal for them. And uh, as she's following them around, she's shouting out, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. <laughs> that's, that's amazing, isn't it? She, she's a slave girl. She's owned, she's powerless, and yet at the same time, she's becoming the spokesperson in a remarkable way to draw people's attention to the message of Paul and Silas. Paul is bothered by this, he's challenged by it because he doesn't want a big scene, if you like. He, he wants people to just engage with what he's seeing, what, with what he's saying. Uh, he wants to be able to hold that dialogue, and yet what we have is this constant shouting in the background. In the end, he turns around and he dismisses the, her response and dismisses the spirit. The response then is one of absolute fury because the men who owned her realized that their source of income had disappeared. I think that's fascinating. One of the problems that religion has always had is it ends up being a game of power, It ends up being a game of money. And here we see, in its starkness, just that. Here's these two men, and they are using the idea of some sort of spiritual force to just make money. And they're furious when it stops. And I would say, you know, hand up. I want to be honest with you and say, over the past 2,000 years, the Christian church has fallen into exactly the same error. The Christian church at times has become uh, an issue of power and it's become an issue of money. And it's never about that. It's actually about the core message of Jesus. That's what Paul understood. In fact, he understood so much about that that it ended up with him going into prison. That's, that's what happens. The, the owners become furious. They go to the magistrates. They drag him off and he ends up being beaten, flogged with, with sticks Without a trial, him and Silas, and they end up in prison. They're in prison. In the middle of the night, there's this massive earthquake. 
the Roman guard has been told in no uncertain terms, make sure that you keep a hold of these two guys because tomorrow we're going to deal with them. That's the implication. Tomorrow we're going to deal with them. In the middle of the night, there is this massive earthquake. The doors fly open. I mean, we've seen, we have the the privilege, we have the opportunity these days to be able to get a closer picture and understanding of what the devastation of an earthquake is. We hear about it in the past. Now we can see it with TV and, and television coverage. You know what it must be like when there's an earthquake and literally doors crash open and, and buildings that were once secure are no longer secure. Uh, and it would seem at this point that the Roman jailer is absolutely terrified because his neck is on the line. As he sees these doors fly open, he realizes that for him, he is now in trouble. He's got a problem because if they escape, it doesn't matter whether it's an earthquake, he's still accountable for them. He's still responsible to make sure that they are available the next day for the next series of beating and flogging and trial. And so he draws his sword. He's about to kill himself and Paul and Silas shout out, don't do it, we're still here. I think for that man at that particular point in time, It's one of those moments in life. We don't get many moments in life. But I think for all of us, at certain points, as we go along our journey, there are crisis moments, potential turning points, things that happen which we are not expecting. I mean, let's face it, he got up that morning, he expected to go to work, do a day's work, sleep in the prison, it would seem, overnight, uh, and that was his job. He didn't expect anything remarkable to happen, and yet it ended up that this was his critical day. The critical day when something in his life makes him ask the biggest questions. And that's what he's faced with. Now, I would suggest if you haven't had one of those crisis days, if you haven't had one of those big moments where you have that opportunity to ask the biggest questions in life, let me just say you will have one. (laughs) At some point in life, you will face one of those big questions. You will face that point where where you respond to something that is going on. You have to ask the bigger questions in life. Now, as I look at it, and I I see what actually happens with this man, what he realizes is that for all of his desire at that point in time, he feels, as he puts them in the stocks, he feels absolutely in control, doesn't he? You can imagine as he takes them into the middle part of the prison, so he's got lots of doors on the way out, he's locked them into the stocks, he feels absolutely in control. And then he realizes that something can happen in his life, no matter how in control he feels, he is now hopeless. That's the situation that he faces. That is one of those crisis moments in our lives when we feel as if we've got it all sorted and then we realize we actually haven't got a handle on it after all. And at that point in time, I think our response is absolutely critical. How we respond to that, how we understand that is absolutely critical. I think we can do one of three things. There are probably others, but I just want to think of three things. I think the first thing that we can do is we can think that we can master the issue. 
In other words, we can face it, and our response is, I'm going to get bigger than it. So I'm going to use all of my resources, I'm going to use all of my skills, all of my in, uh, um, invention, people around me, all of those kinds of things. I'm going to use all of that, and I'm going to bring it to bear on the situation and control it. That's one way that we can go. Uh, and many of us go down that line of seeking to control it. The reality is, and I've, I've had the privilege of being able to chat to so many people over the years about this, is the reality is that when we think we can tr- control it, very often we hit another issue, which is even bigger than the one that we've previously faced, and we realize that when we thought we'd gained control, we've actually not mastered it anyway. Because it seems to escalate. Have you been in that situation where you think, I've got it sorted, and then wham, another thing happens, or another issue escalates out of the first one. And you think, I'm mastering it, I'm not mastering it. I'm mastering it, I'm not mastering it. And in the end, you realize that anything, any control that we think we have, there is always the opportunity for this to be something bigger than us. We don't actually ever control it, do we? So I would question the idea of mastering it. The other response is for it to master us, to say, I I, I just can't do anything with this. This is bigger than me. I, I can't control it. I kind of, I want out in one way or another. I want to escape from it. I want to escape into some kind of way of escaping and throughout history, humanity has found different ways to escape whether it's escaping with uh, chemical help, whether it's escaping with alcohol, whether it's escaping with activities, whether it's escaping with literally physically running away and hoping that it would go away. Whatever we do, there is a way that we try to accept that it's mastered us and to just escape. The reality is that in that very escaping, in whatever it is that we escape into, we find that that ends up mastering us, don't we? And we find that. So I escape into a Jack Daniels, and it no longer becomes an escape. It becomes something that then masters me. So there's the second opportunity, and maybe this guy was faced with all of those. He could allow it to master him. He could try to master it, I actually think there's a moment where he thinks it's mastered me because he draws his sword and he says, I'm going to kill myself. That is the ultimate acceptance that I am beaten, isn't it? And then something happens where there is an intervention where the third option emerges, which is this, to look for help outside of ourselves. Not by mastering it ourselves, not by giving up, but by actually looking for help outside of ourselves. Look at how it actually works out. He goes in and he realizes that against all odds, against the, I mean, every prisoner, I, I think, you know, in the Roman Empire, every prisoner who's just been flogged, who's been beaten, and the doors fly open in the middle of the night. There aren't many who would decide, I'll tell you what, I'll stay in the stocks. They've popped open, I could escape, I'll stay here. I'll stay here. But they did. And he goes in, and he is utterly amazed. But he asks a question, which is, 
very strange. Very, very strange. He asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why is that so strange? I would suggest it's strange because he is saved, isn't he? He is saved. He was facing death because the prisoners had escaped. He's now found out that they hadn't escaped, and therefore he is saved, isn't he? He's okay. He's safe. And yet, what I suggested earlier is that this has been a springboard for him, not to just ask the question for now, but to ask the bigger questions. I've been listening to these guys. They've been singing hymns. They've been praying. They've been responding remarkably different in this situation to the way I know I would respond in that situation. I've been listening to what's going on. When the prison doors fly open, they don't run away. What is it about them? And he turns to them and he says, forget the now, forget this moment in time. You're talking about something of eternal importance. How can I get saved like I can see you are? That's the question that he's asking. He's saying, I'm looking at you and I'm seeing a couple of guys who are facing one of the worst situations in life. You've been flogged the day before. You're in a cold Roman prison. The future is incredibly bleak and yet your response is not to be absolutely destroyed by that. You've got a hope which is outside of you. And he's saying effectively, how can I have that hope from outside of me? Look at how Paul responds. Uh, he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. In other words, the, the idea of saved in this little story changes. The initial idea about being saved is the idea of just not being killed because you've lost your prisoners. And then suddenly it gets catapulted to a much bigger level. And he says, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. I want to ask just one question, therefore. What does it mean when he says, believe in Jesus? Exactly the same person who was in the Roman stocks in the middle of that prison, writes a letter to some Christians in the city of Rome. And he describes it like this. Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ, who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? That's a strange thing. Carry on, please, Paul. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. He's saying this, Jesus is so unique as God in this world, as God present, that his death, his burial, his resurrection... And the opportunity for me to be baptized into it is way more than some kind of Christian ceremony. It is a statement of my belief. It's a belief that by me committing myself to him, his death becomes relevant for me. 
His burial becomes relevant for me. His resurrection becomes relevant for me. In fact, all of those become effectively mine. Why did Jesus die on a cross? You might say, well, because the whole political system eventually ended up there, apart from the fact that 700 and odd years earlier, Isaiah had said he will be effectively killed in the way that it is described, and it pleased his father to bruise him. In other words, we might see presented to us in human terms the idea of Jesus being taken to a Roman cross by Roman soldiers having been tried by Jews and Romans, implicating the whole of the human race. We might see that, but the reality is that behind it, God is doing the work of nailing his son to a cross. That's remarkable. Why would he do that? So that you and me can then be baptized, immersed into that death. Why would I want to be immersed into being nailed on a cross? Because God says that that is the punishment for sin. And Jesus who didn't sin gets nailed to a cross. Therefore, if he gets nailed to a cross and I can be associated with that, it means that I'm effectively nailed to a cross. In him, he bears that punishment for me. That's what it means to believe. It also means that I am confident that I can be buried and I will rise again because he did. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the whole of this is just a waste of time. And yet it is presented that he did rise from the dead by eyewitnesses. Now, that's a huge issue of debate. We could talk about that for a long time, but that's what we see presented to us. And now we get to the point of this afternoon. What does it mean in 21st century Great Britain to believe? It means that I, I am more than just saying that I agree with certain things. I can believe in one way and I can believe in another way. I can believe that two and two equals four, and I know that there's going to be some genius mathematicians later who are going to persuade me that it doesn't necessarily have to, but for those of us who are simple in our mathematics, I can believe that two and two makes four, but it doesn't really impact me on a day-to-day basis in a massive way. However, I can believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. I can believe that he died. I can believe that he rose again. I can believe that that is significant for me. And that changes everything on a day-to-day basis. Most of you will have, many of you will have seen um, and I've forgotten the name of the film. Never mind. It'll come to me. The immersing in the idea of Jesus' death is absolutely critical to my hope. It's the way that I can be sure that my hope is that I will rise again. Look at the, re- the final kind of comment that we read, the, ge- the final response. He was filled, we read in verse 34, Acts chapter 16, he was filled with joy, this is the jailer, filled with joy. Because he had come to believe in God. I think that's ace. I think that's fantastic. In human terms, he would be filled with joy because the prisoners hadn't escaped. 
But suddenly, his moment has given him the opportunity to reflect on much bigger things and to say, I actually believe in something way bigger now, bigger than even the prospect of death had those prisoners released. escaped. And the reason that it's bigger, because I now believe that in his death, in his resurrection, even if it did work out in the absolute worst way that it possibly could, I believe that I will die and I will rise again in him. That's great news. That's great hope. Our four friends who are going to be baptized this afternoon believe that. They believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. They believe that he died and he bore their guilt on the tree. He belated, they believe that he, in his death, dies in their place. And in his resurrection, they have hope of resurrection themselves. That's the simple message. But Sal, being saved is a big word. At a really deep level, when we start to ask the big questions, it's the knowledge that before God... I am forgiven. You know and I know there are things in life that from a conscience point of view eat away at us that nobody else knows about. They do. They eat away at us. We are conscious that we are guilty. We might, in, in terms of our veneers that we put up for each other, we might claim that we're not, but we know that we are really. The reality is that we know that. The Christian faith says, I have come, Jesus said, I have come to bring you peace. The peace of the knowledge of forgiveness, that is a great thing. Yeah, I I, I and you can be really bad. Really bad. Actually, the one who was in the stocks had previously been responsible for murdering those who believed Jesus. Paul was a murderer of Christians. That's how amazing God is in how he turns situations around. That somebody who was once a murderer becomes the one who proclaims the message to more people probably than anybody else in the history of the Christian church. But at heart, guilt removed, forgiveness and eternity assured. Receiving what I don't deserve. That's great news.